Welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where it's not discs or trains, it's discs and trains. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jacob Kleppenstein. Jake, how are you doing tonight? I am doing wonderfully, my friend. Um, have you actually had a chance to play your new edition of Age of Steam yet? I've played mine three times so far. I have not. Well, if you count playing with it, taking out all the components and replacing them with the little choo-choo trains instead of discs, and then proceeding to start laser cutting an insert to replace the extremely flimsy one that comes in the box, then yes, I've played with it. You have moved the things around. Well, that's great. We have an action-packed episode for everybody. Much unlike last week's episode, this is all about me. This is not the Mark Show. It's the Jake Show this time. How fun is that? (laughs) And Jake, this is episode 30. Can you believe it? Wow, we've made it. We're officially older than I am. Holy cow. We got to come up with something special for our anniversary show coming up because, man, that's coming up soon. Yeah, we've almost been at this for a whole year and it wouldn't be possible without all of our wonderful listeners. So thank you again for listening. I will tell you one thing I'm going to spoil in advance because I want everybody to get thinking on this one. We're going to do a contest that is to name our mascot. Ooh, he doesn't have a name. He should have a name, right? I agree. Yeah, we we, we we just refer to him as the little like Monopoly looking guy. Yeah. So, yeah, having a good name for him will be wonderful. He needs identity. So we'll run a contest around this at our anniversary episode and uh, start thinking about it now. Get some great submissions ready to go about what to name our gaming mogul Monopoly guy mascot. Cool. All right. Well, as I said earlier, this episode is all about me. So what we're going to do and what we did in the last episode, if you haven't listened to it, is we did Mark's top 20. And with that, we said we'd be doing my top 20 the next episode. So that's what we're doing. Should we start it off, Mark? Sounds great, Jake. Let's hear what you got. I'm going to do the same thing as Mark, where I do 20 down to one. And the order does matter for these, but we'll see. This is my list as of now, the fall of 2019. It'll probably change by spring of 2020. So this is as it is a snapshot of now. Unlike Mark, I am not going to do my honorable mentions. I don't quite know where they are. I somehow made this list and texted it over to Mark and then can't log back into PubMeeple and find it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Every game at 21 to however many games I've played is all the same. So when people ask you about why something's not on a list, you're going to just go, I, I think that was 21. Yeah, they're, they're all 21. Every single game that's not on the list is completely <laughs> even. These are the only ones of merit. Totally 21. I went through and I filtered a bunch of stuff out of my list last week. Jake, did you just run everything as was or did you do any uh, filtering and list massaging before you started ranking? I did do some list massaging. I first originally started with everything that I've ever played. And much like you said, it'd take like a thousand matches and I value my time probably too much. That really means I'm lazy. So I didn't really want to do that. So I ended up saying, okay, now I'm just going to do everything that I've rated an eight on BGG or above. And then that still took too much time. So I did everything that I think was a nine and above. And I think that resulted in this list here. Much like you, Mark, I removed most filler games. I kept a couple in there that like were really special to me and are definitely my like favorite examples of that. And then I also removed most 18xx game and put them in one category under 1830. So whenever I was rating 1830, that really meant 18xx. It's pretty high up. We'll see. We'll, We'll see when we get there. Let's just refer to that collectively as 18xx rather than I know 1830 in specific. It's not your favorite 18xx oh, no. game. It's, it's it's what I consider a lower tiered 18xx. But I did do my top tier 18xx <laughs> right. whenever we talk about the 18xx. So let's start with my number 20. I'm speaking of a game that I was sad to hear was not on your top 20 list. Pretty much all the games on my top 20 list I was sad to hear were not on your top 20 list. I'm speaking of 2017's 
Azul, designed by Michael Kiesling and published by Plan B Games. This is definitely my favorite lightweight game, Hard Stop. If I'm going to play with people that aren't into games, this is 100% the game I'm reaching out to. It's really easy to pick up the strategy, but that doesn't mean that it's not boring to play once you've played it a lot. I know you've played this one a lot because you actually owned a copy for a little longer than I did, Mark. Oh, yeah. And this game is absolutely a big favor of mine. Looking at my own list, I actually had this one at 27. So we're in the same decade on it. So I don't think you can get that upset with me. Agreed. Yeah, no, it's just a wonderful game. I love the tactile quality of the components that includes in it. I love what you do in it. I just this game's great. If This really should be in every family's game night game with any kids that are a little bit older and like to think. Because it is a little slower and you're not it's not as random. So little kids definitely will lose in it. But I've played this with a whole bunch of non-gaming normies and they've absolutely loved it. I love Azul. It's a great game. Yeah, the strategy on this one is rock solid, right? I mean, if you have to understand how to play the strategy well in order to score well at this thing, you have to do some hate drafting. You have to be aware of what other people are going for. And that's the key to winning. If you just sort of randomly just kind of grab whatever is good enough at that moment, you're not going to win this game. And that's a really impressive attribute about this. Agreed. I haven't played with the expansion or anything with the Jokers. And we've actually talked about this previously, but I think my copy is at least not passing QA. I would assume that my copy is uh, uh, made in some other factory in China, but you are under the impression that it is like kind of B run, a second shift kind of game. I think it is a legit copy of the game, but there's definitely a difference in print runs at minimum because you put our two games side by side and the boxes look different. There are some different shading and colors, but, you know, I think you can expect that with any game that's been run a whole bunch of times and has had multiple new print runs. There's going to be some subtle differences from print run to print run. Yeah. So anywho, that is my number 20 favorite game. I'm always down for a game of it. It's one of my most played games. It is Azul. You know what my biggest problem with this game is? What's that? I get super hungry for Starbursts every time we play it. <laughs> oh, I did see someone at Clopcon. I think Jamie was going to try to play Azul with the Starbursts, but I don't think there's <laughs> enough colors of Starbursts to do it with. So I think you need to buy no. two different packs or something along those lines so you can have enough colors. And blue Starbursts would be kind of yucky. Yeah, no thanks. So yeah, <laughs> it is definitely a Starburst looking game. They should really try to market it with Starburst or something and make it a little one-time consuming little pack. I would absolutely love that. Yeah, for sure. All right. So moving on to my number 19 game. Um, This is another newer game. This is from 2012 by the Splatter Crew. This is The Great Zimbabwe designed by Yorin Druman and Yoris Wersinga. The Great Zimbabwe, we've talked about it. It's probably the most divisive Splatter game. Would you agree with that there, Mark? I think so, as we've sort of talked about our preferences around splatter games with friends of ours on the Internet and in person. People love this game or they hate it. It's either their favorite splatter or it's their least favorite splatter. It seems to be very uh, little middle ground on their opinion on the Great Zimbabwe. Right, which is surprising because this is actually my middle groundist of the splatters that I've currently played. I've played um, the Great Zimbabwe Antiquity and in Indonesia, and I've also played Food Chain Magnet. And Food Chain Magnet is my least favorite surprisingly, of those four I've played. I think it's just I've played it a decent amount and it's just not fun to teach to new people, but I guess neither is the Great Zimbabwe. But what you're doing in the Great Zimbabwe is you're a bunch of different tribes in the Great Zimbabwe, in modern day Zimbabwe, but you're back in time. And so what you're trying to do is it's got two really cool mechanisms that I really like. For one, 
there's a turn order bidding that's kind of similar to Age of Steam, where you have to bid or pass. But once you've passed, you go on the very end of the, um, the line of the turn order. But when you actually pay your bid, you pay it in Mancala style to each one of the players. So depending on where you are in bid order, you may just get free money. And if you're really willing to try to get first, you have to spend a bunch of money that's going to go to your opponents, which I just absolutely love. The other thing that I really like in The Great Zimbabwe is all of your special powers come with a certain amount of victory points that you need to make to win. So for example, every single special power you take has a victory point requirement cost. So everyone just has to get to 20 victory points to win the game. But if you take this power, now you have to get to 26, for example. And I absolutely love that in this game. The part that we probably don't like about it is explaining the different network of webs on how to deliver all the goods. But once you've seen that enough, it kind of seems to work a little bit better. I think it's a wonderful game. I really am always down to play it. I've taught it with mixed results amongst groups in the last year, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of The Great Zimbabwe. Yeah, and this is a thing that um, I don't I am probably have the mixed ish opinion on this one. Spoiler, I'm not really a fan, but I can see why people like it and I see why it's a good game. It's just that the uh, the, the heat map sort of uh, delivery good system thing just didn't soak in with me. And so therefore, I spent just most of the game going, what? Because I, I my teach on that was pretty rock solid. And I just think it was one of those things where you hadn't settled into the game night or whatever or whatnot. And you sat down and just like kind of missed the teach. And then you were just kind of behind the entire time, which is not what you want to be in a splatter game, because they always have a quote attributed to the Yoren and Joris those folks saying that if you can't lose in the first turn of a game, why have a first turn? And so if you're not aware of what's happening for the first 20% of the game, you probably are out of the game. Well, I did actually almost win. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Weirdly. Almost. Me and you were both bottom feeding. Yeah. Part of the problem was is that my uh, my food order came up at the place that we were playing at, literally like uh, kind of midway through the teach. And I didn't want to be that guy. So I just kind of quietly got up, got my food, came back and didn't ask enough questions. So I think there was important parts that I just plain straight up missed. Absolutely. So that is The Great Zimbabwe by Splatter Spellin, published in 2012. One of uh, my favorite splatter games. Top three. The one after it is another splatter game, number 18, designed by Joran and Joris. This is 2004's Antiquity. I love Antiquity, and it's funny. I really want people who have played a bunch of Uwe Rosenberg games to play Antiquity because Antiquity is clearly part of the design ethos and something that Uwe Rosenberg thought was wonderful and carried into a lot of his games like Agricola and At the Gates of Loyang and hell, even Feast for Odin with the polynomial tiles, poly, polyomino, polyomino tiles. Polyomino. Polyominoes. Thank you. I know you've played this one and you actually have a copy of it, right, Mark? I do. And it's funny you mentioned that, that I know we've talked about this in the past about the uh, inspiration to Uwe Rosenberg from this game. And because, spoiler, if you listen to last week's episode, I'm a big fan of everything Uwe Rosenberg. This is a game that instantly appealed to me when I played it right out of the gate. I understood it perfectly. I knew exactly what to do. I loved every part of it. I got my butt kicked and now I own a copy of it. So a hundred percent, this is a dead crossover gimme if you're a Nuve Rosenberg fan to jump into the world of Splatter. Agreed. So what you're doing in antiquity is you are different civilizations. There is kind of a hex grid kind of map that is uh, modular and set up different depending on how many players you have. And what you're doing is you have these different cities and each one of your cities is abstracted, represented by this seven by seven or six by six, I believe, grid of different buildings. And on your turn, you're going to be going out into the world and putting down more farmers and you're going to be putting down wood 
cutters and you're putting down all these different things to get these resources to which you could build more buildings in your cities. And the reason why we're doing this is there's five ways to win, four of them being different victory conditions. Like let's say you have to fully encompass all of your opponent's area within your field of influence, which I'm not going to explain. You have to have built every building. You have to have one of every resource. Then you also have to, I can't remember the last one off the top of my head, but the other one being you have to do two of any one of the the gods, but every single god is associated with a special power. But when you choose the one where you get to have two of the gods, you get every single special power. So this game has the most interesting thing I think about it is that you can really forecast what resources you're going to get. So if you've played At the Gates of Luoyang, there is functionally a harvest phase where at each one of your fields, you're going to grab one of those out. In the design notes, in my copy of At the Gates of Luoyang, Uwe Rosenberg straight up says that he loved what antiquity had to offer with this mechanism so much, he thought he'd build a whole game about it. And that ended up being At the Gates of Luoyang. So In antiquity, you get to go down and chop down all these fields and then you get or chop down all these wood and every single round you get a wood from the uh, from your little woodsman. And then also once all those woods are cleared, then you get to plant these fields. Let's say you plant it with, I don't know, olives. Then every single round you get to grab one of the olives from that olive farm out. And it ends up making this really wonderful thing of having all of your people allocated in certain ways. Maybe you have too many people as like woodcutters or balancing these when you're going to get resources, when, because you can't hold on to all these resources. Of course not. That'd be too hard. But it ends up making for just an absolutely wonderful, thinky kind of long game. My main complaint about it is it takes way too long at three or four players, and it's kind of been relegated to an only two-player experience for me. Yeah, and that's certainly limited the number of times we have played it as a result, because I have played this one time. I absolutely loved it and would love to play this one again. Yeah, I think I should just really try to beeline this and add this to maybe my December slash January bag because it just really is a wonderful game. And I think a lot of people that are more used to modern, I'm putting that in air quotes, Euro design would really like a lot of what this has to offer. I agree. Anywho, that is my number 18 game, Antiquity by Splatter Spellin. We would be remiss if we didn't have some trains in this this list of top 20 games. So with my number 17 game is a game that I know is on your top 20 list too as well, Mark. We're talking about 2000 our first crossover, our first one of many. We're talking about 2002's Age of Steam by Martin Wallace and most recently published by Eagle Griffin Games. Why don't you describe what we're doing in this game, Mark? Because we both have a copy and you're actually the one who wonderfully introduced me to this game. Okay. Age of Steam is ostensibly a pickup and deliver game, except you're never actually in possession of those things. You're trying to build track and deliver goods from one town to the next. The problem is, is that there's not enough money to do everything that you want to do, not by a darn sight. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to maximize the cash that you have and somehow minimize the amount of loans you need to get up and running so that you can efficiently move those goods and profit back from them. In the process, it's ridiculously tight. It's one of those that one foot out of place will lose you the game very likely. And this has inspired an entire giant community of love around playing Age of Steam. There is 75 maps. I think there's more than that. I think there's way more <laughs> there's than a that. a lot of them. Because if you look on ageofsteammaps.com, or I just Google Age of Steam maps, there's this giant like online spreadsheet of all the maps and what player count they're best at. Plus, on top of this, with the... BGG database. It seems like a lot of maps and redraws are posted there with the rules. So it really is just an expansion of, hey, let's print a map at a large format printer and take it home. There it is. Now you got a new expansion to Age of Steam. It's wonderful. I'm so happy I have a copy of it. I played it three times in the past week. 
and I hope to play it a whole bunch more. I think this is a game that I really just want to dive whole hog into. Yeah, this is a game that I absolutely could see becoming a lifestyle game for people. In fact, there are conventions just based around nothing but playing Age of Steam. I ran into a guy at the ski club that I teach for that said, oh, hey, I, uh, I heard you're into like playing train games. You ever play Age of Steam? And I went, oh, yeah, you know, a couple times. How about 18xx? He goes, nope, I only play Age of Steam. Wow. So I was like, OK, all right. <laughs> That's amazing. So with the variety of maps that are out there and what's nifty about the maps is they're not just maps. I mean, each one of them tends to have a different set of rules for that particular map that warps the game for that particular play instance. Like, for example, the moon, right? What's the moon? Well, it's a small round thing. So the right side of the map on the moon connects with the left side of the map. That's really neat. And I want to try that. <laughs> right. Completely agree. I, I really want to just dive into this game. It's just, it's, it's awesome. I can't wait to play this a lot more in the future and just kind of become an Angel Steam guy. It's just such a fun game. And I do like the new production of it. It's much prettier than it originally was, but I do think they missed a little bit, especially comparing this game to other, you know, tool designed train games held Stevenson's Rocket and Irish Gage. Both those just have a little bit more detail to them and makes it look a little bit less flat. But Age Steam is wonderful. I'm so happy to play. I would like to play a game where one person doesn't completely check out of the game at the very end of it, but can't always win it all. You know, can't win it all. No, I know. I agree. I love the new production, too. Certainly better than the old one. I have the third edition Eagle Griffin version of it, and it's really dated looking. Holy cow. I think the new one maybe went too far in the other direction, and that's what people are frustrated about, and that there was a really great opportunity to make something beautiful. And this is something sparse yes (laughs) it's it's spartan the the graphic design is very spartan but it could have been i think what they're trying to do is they try to make it so they can keep on publishing maps really 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 easily that's at least my assumption here but it's just it's it ends up being a little bit too sparse they could have put a little bit more detail in the background or something that certainly does not detract away in any way shape or form from the enjoyment of playing this game and this is definitely a hall of fame game for both of us and i think this is one that over time will just grow to appreciate more and is always one that we could pull out and play at a really high competitive level agreed i really think that age of steam will be higher in both of our lists next year i wouldn't be surprised if it's top 10 for both of us i couldn't agree more wonderful all right well why don't we move on to our number 16 game which is number two overlap with you I'm speaking of 2013's Caverna, The Cave Farmers by Uwe Rosenberg and Lookout Games. We spoke about this one kind of at length in your top 20, so I won't go too crazy about it. But Caverna is the first medium heavy-ish game that I fell in love with. Um, This is one of my uncle's favorite games, and we played this sometime around 2013. And we played it at a little convention or a little buddy con. And every single year since then, we've always played at that buddy con, and I've just fallen in love with this game. I actually have a copy that I don't think I've ever actually played with the insert and everything, just because this game is such a special thing to me in my gaming history. You know, this was like, I remember first playing this game and this thinking there is no games in the world that could be heavier than this thing. And now look at us. We play a lot more heavy <laughs> stuff than that all the time. And I can see, yeah. and I think Caverna is rightly a medium weight game. But what you're doing at Caverna is you're farming, you're building up a little cave dwelling for your dwarves, or if you have the expansion, your different race. And you're building and furnishing this to get the most victory points through a myriad of different ways. I love what it has to offer. I love that it is slightly tight, but not too tight. You do still need to worry about feeding your family, but it's not so oppressive and completely in your face where it doesn't seem like people beg, if ever, in this game. 
I don't really know what to say about it besides the fact that I love it so much and that I'm really looking forward to trying the expansion to seeing if we can breathe a little bit more life into this game. My issue is it's just such a completely open sandbox. I want to have a little nudge one way or another to know how I should be playing the game each round instead of falling into the same traps and tropes that I always do. Yep. I think everybody around the table actually needs a cheat sheet of what buildings are available. That yes, would also be very agreed. helpful. And then it ends up looking like this big spreadsheet game that actually isn't a spreadsheet game because all those tiles are everywhere. But it's a wonderful game. If you haven't tried Caverna of the Cave Farmers, please do try it. It's, I, I, I love it. Can't speak highly of it enough. Jake, out of curiosity, where did you have Agricola ranked? I don't know. It's at 21, Mark. It didn't make my top <laughs> I 20. I was hoping you'd take the bait on that one. <laughs> um, it's definitely number 21. Just missed the top 20. So legitimately, I actually don't know. I know it's high. I do prefer Caverna as of now, just because I have the history with it. I definitely could see them flip-flopping, though, um, with, with repeated plays. And once I actually sort out my traded copy of Agricola and figure out what deck I should be using, I could definitely see going to that one more. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, we need to sort out over the next year is which is really better, Agricola or Caverna? What an awesome challenge. So, so Such hard work for us. All right, that was number 16's Caverna. Now we're moving on to number 15, which was another one of the appalling ones I did not see on your top 20, which was just sad. I'm speaking of 2005's Glory to Rome, designed by Ed Carter and Carl Chuddick. One of those guys designed more than 50%, and neither one of them will admit who it is. And published by Cambridge Games Factory. This is the only one on the, my top 20 list that I don't own, which is just sad and appalling. But that's probably because it's just so hard to get a copy of it. So we've talked about Glory to Rome a lot on this podcast. We haven't talked about it recently, though. What you're doing is you are different Roman patricians, right? Where you're rebuilding Rome after it had been sacked by some barbarians. And the way that you're doing this is by using multi-use cards to try to kind of make the most broken combo. That's always how this game's spoken. The combos aren't that broken. I mean, there's definitely more combo wombo games, but you're trying to get like an architect that'll make more architects so you can like build six buildings at a time kind of thing. And then once that happens and someone builds a good engine, usually the game ends. We haven't played this one in a while. I did place an order to a printing house to have a black market copy made, but uh, I ended up giving that to a dear friend of ours because I think he deserves a little bit more than I do. But I love Glory to Rome. It's one of my favorite <laughs> filler-ish games that's just cards, and I would absolutely love a copy of a Black Box edition if someone would be willing to part with it for a reasonable amount. It is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful game. Yeah, and this is something that is a pretty quick teach, actually. Like, once you, you just have to sort of run through what all the different actions the cards do, and then you have to go through the following actions. And then for the most part, in much the way, same way Lahav is, the game is somewhat defined by what's printed on the cards. So you only actually need to worry about the actions that are on the cards or the cards in the table in front of you in the center pool. So it's a fairly quick game to get out and play. I will say the playtime on this one is can be a little variable. Like, yeah, it, <laughs> it really depends, depends on how quickly people get to a combo. Yeah, because if someone if people aren't good and they're just building stuff to build stuff and it's not stuff they should be fishing for or something like it's kind of a waste of time to build it they end up being pretty bad at the game and it ends up going really slow because right, right. no one's just no one's doing well. You know, it'd be like a, a hundred meter race with either star athletes or me and you, you know, we're both doing the same thing, <laughs> but I promise those guys will run it a lot faster than we will. My hamstrings hurt just thinking about that. Oh, <laughs> right. So anyway, that is uh, <laughs> another kind of old game. 2005's Glory to Rome, published by Cambridge Games Factory. I'm a huge fan. If someone would be willing to part with a black box copy, shoot me a DM. I will happily take it off your hands. 
And that is one that was very high on my list. It didn't quite make my top 20. It was number but 21, it was right? Really close. Number 21? Number 21. No, it wasn't. In, for sure. I don't think it was in your top 25, even with your inclusion, which was appalling, Mark. It's a great game. You know, it's not quite number 21. It is actually number 24. So once again, same decade. I think your criticism was maybe a little overplayed there, Jake. 100%. My bad. I should have been a better friend and remembered what your top 20 is. No, Glory to Rome, <laughs> it's such a wonderful game. If you haven't tried it, try it. The issue is it's just hard to get your hands on because of how they've, they've, read, they've been a whole bunch of like news articles on this game, if you want to read the whole story from the Kickstarter. So anyway, that is Glory to Rome by Cambridge Game Factory. I'm a big fan. Moving on to older games that got reprinted relatively recently. My number 14 is designed by Klaus Zoke and published secondly by Capstone Games. I'm talking about The Estates or Nua Heimat, I believe is how you pronounce it. What you're doing in The Estates is you are different real estate investors investing in different parts of the city that have been allocated to have new development going on them. But what's strange about it is you are trying to get the most prestige depending on which building companies you are the owner of. So there's five different colors, and what you're doing on your turn is it's just an auction. When it's someone's turn, they put a piece of the game board up to auction, and then whoever wins that auction is going to be able to place that piece anywhere they want that is legal. So let's start off with what are the different kinds of pieces, and then finally I'll wrap it up with what's the cool part about the auction. There's a bunch of different building supplies, so if you place a building supply, you can stack these up and build different levels. The just numbers above must be smaller than the numbers below. So if you have a five on the base level, you could put a four, three, two, or one above it. And then let's say you put a three, then somebody else could put a two or one above that. And the only person who owns that building is the person who's most recently built on it with their level. So if you're the green guy, very up top, and then there's a blue and a purple below, doesn't matter if those blue and purples are below, the green guy's getting the entire points for that entire thing. There's roofs that you can buy that vary from one to six points, and those get put on top, and those cap the building so they can no longer be built upon and also contribute more points. There's also extenders. Every road originally starts as only four long, but you can make it longer or shorter depending on what extender you buy. There's also a canceller, which cancels one of the extenders. And then finally, there's the mayor. And the mayor gives a tour of one of the three roads, I guess, and makes all of the points positive or negative on that double. So the cool thing about the auction uh, in this game that I love is whatever the group decides, you only get one opportunity to go around. Let's say I start putting up a blue three up for sale. Then John bets 10, Mark bets 12, and then Tyler passes. So the highest bet is 12. I can either take the 12 bucks from Mark or I can choose to pay Mark 12 bucks because it's the highest bid. So it's kind of one of those things where you want to bid the right market value for it so that somebody's not going to get it for too cheap. But money's hidden in this game, so you kind of have to track who has how much money. The final thing I'll say about this game that makes it oh so so juicy and wonderful, only certain streets will actually score you points. So if a road is fully um, complete, that's great. It'll score you positive points if you're the person that owns the certain buildings. But if a road is incomplete at the end of the game, which finishes when two roads are complete, the incomplete roads will all detract their certain score from that point. So the thing that you thought was going to score you 13 points actually scores you negative 13 points. And oh man, it is wonderful. This game goes down to the very last action, it seems, and really is just trying about making people care and invest in something that you have an investment in. Oh, it's just... Oh, it's so good. I love this game so much. I did play this once with my family and my kids just howled with laughter as they got minus scores on something that dad had. And, you know, they they actually really enjoy the auction thing. 
they're not really very intelligently bidding on things, but you know, if they think they got somebody to pay more than it was worth, they're just their poker face is absolutely non-existent. Oh my god, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's absolutely this game is almost a party game. It's just so close, you know, with all of these fun things you get to do in it. You can really just make the entire table just start up laughing. I have never played it in three turns in a row kind of thing. That's apparently a variant or how it was originally played or something where all the money you sequester away kind of counts towards the end. But anyway, I love the estates. If it has a beautiful production from Capstone Games, I'm so happy that we both randomly pre-ordered this out of the blue because it we had so much fun with this game. I can't wait to play it more. I think we would call that socially interactive. It is incredibly socially interactive. You are constantly talking around the game, and I don't know how you could play this game without being that way. And also strategically interactive. I mean, if I was going to, going to make a big stack of my most interactive games, this would definitely be near the top. Agreed. One small little deluxified component I highly suggest from this. Try to find a little small gavel. I bought some for Mark and Mai's copy, and it makes everything so much more fun. To hit the little table with the little gavel after the auction's been sold is really fun, and it helps to note whose turn it is, because that actually is something weird that kind of gets lost in this game. You don't really know whose turn it is, but buy a gavel. It's hilarious. It's really fun. I love it. Number 13 is Race for the Galaxy, which is published by Rio Grande Games and designed by Thomas Lehman. This game came out in 2007. This is definitely my most played game if you consider online against AI games to be the most played. Um, Race of the Galaxy is kind of similar to Glory to Rome, but I think Race of the Galaxy is slightly better. Don't at me. What you're doing is you have a bunch of different planets and there's these cards that come out that are multi-use. They're either currency or they're either developments or planets that you're building to add into your tableau. Then what you're trying to do is you're trying to build the most efficient engine to get the most victory points. Woo, we've all heard that before. But what's so great about this game is it just really embodies the term race. Normally, I don't like it when games end just some arbitrary amount and then they say, oh, well, you just it's a race game. You had to get there first. But this game, it is so splendid in. It really gets down to the point where you have to always measure how quickly you can get your thing up and running and whether or not you can end the game so you'll win. I love this game. I always want to play it more. Race for the Galaxy is such an amazing design, and I really think it's one of the classic games. Yeah, this is the only one on your list that I actually have not played. You've played it online. Yeah, I have the app version, and I've played it online there, which, you know, is nice because it kind of has the built-in tutorial, and you can tap on the cards and sort of explains what they do, and that worked out great, but that's something I actually probably just need to dive in and play more because when you play on the app and so forth, I mean, you can burn through a game in 10 or 15 minutes. Well, that's why. I mean, I, I think I even less than that on an airplane. If I'm on a flight and I'm just like listening to an audiobook or a podcast or something, I'll just play this on repeat. And I've probably played this game hundreds of times. And it's just, it still is just as amazing to be able to play a game for that many times and that many repetitions and not be bored of it. My issue is I've spoken on this in the podcast. I'm giving my copy to a good friend, Steve. I bought all the expansions to it. And I don't know which modules you're supposed to include. And currently they're all sorted into one. So I'm going to give it to him and just say, hey, this is yours for a little bit. Go through it, figure out what expansions are supposed to play with and not supposed to play with and sort all the cards and bring it back. And I will love you forever, Steve. So he's going to (laughs) I'm going to give it to him. He's going to deal with it and it's going to be no big deal. But this game is wonderful. It's also really cheap if you want to buy it online. It should be in every gamer's collection. Race of the Galaxy is a wonderful game. My number 12 game is Imperial Settlers, published in 2014. This game is designed by Ignacy Trevicek and Masje Obvansky. Obvansky. 
That's close enough. By Portal Games. So what you're doing in Imperial Settlers is you have two different decks that everyone's pulling from, which I think is the most wonderful part about this game. There's common buildings, and then there's these special faction-exclusive buildings. And all these faction-exclusive buildings are vastly different, but all kind of work together in a way that you're trying to optimize it. So this game's played over five turns, and what you're doing is you are building this tableau of abilities. It's really interesting because I've taught this game to a handful of new players in the last while, and the one thing I'll say about it is it is a game that you don't quite understand how cool it is until after you've played it all. Because when you're building your tableau, those first couple of turns go by really, really, really quickly. And you're like, how the hell is this even a game? We've played for 15 minutes and two of the turns are done and there's not really much else I get to do. And then the fourth and fifth turn comes and you're like, oh my God, this game is amazing because of how big it just gotten. And all those decisions I made earlier were the wrong decisions and I'm not able to stretch and extend. This game is, I think, my favorite tableau builder, if this can even be considered a tableau builder, but it just is so wonderful. It ends up feeling just like you're just trying to get every last ounce of conversion out of this deck of cards in your hand and your tableau and everything until you can't do it anymore and you get to re-get some new supplies and you get to do that five times and see how far you can get. I have heard some people complain about the faction balance. Have you seen that, Mark? I haven't. You know, I've played this so two or three times and I think we've played like my daughter wanted to play the Japanese both times, so she just played the Japanese both times. I haven't played it enough times to really notice that there's a massive difference between one or the other. I think maybe a lot of the issue comes from that certain faction. So there's two different decks, as I mentioned, which is something I find really wonderful about this game. These are common ones that most people end up using just to get resources to power your bigger faction abilities. But you really want to draw through your faction deck as much as you humanly can in that game. So you can see as many cards of your faction abilities, which are the stronger, kind of more tailor-made towards your special ability. I think some factions are easier to play than others, which might be kind of where the imbalance comes from. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Right. And so there also is some raising, R-A-Z-E, that can happen in this game where you can take down your opponent's buildings. But I've really rarely seen that actually happen because it just seems so much more detrimental to spend two resources to take down someone else's building versus spending one to take a card down in your hand and get more resources. So I, I, I still need to play this one more. I've played it about 20, 25 times and I'd love to play it more. But Imperial Settlers is a wonderful game. It kind of has the same issue with Antiquity, where it's really been relegated to a two or three player game, not really a four player game, just because it has a lot of downtime towards the later half of the game. By rounds uh, four and five, for sure, you have so many cards out there and so many actions to do. <laughs> it really explodes out the number of things that I'm going to do this. And, then, you know, and, and you just keep going around the table and around the table and around the table. And so, you know, round one takes five minutes. Round four takes 20 probably probably 30 honestly like with just how much time it takes for the last couple of rounds the round four and five each one is equal to the previous three rounds it usually seems that way maybe a little different but it's just such an amazing game i do think it's one of the best tableau builders and i am always in to buy more expansion of this game i think my copy is like all of 200 dollars now because i bought almost every single expansion and an insert for it it is such a good game That's the challenge I have with your copy is trying to figure out what to actually play with when I open the box. I see everything in there and I just go, uh, I don't don't even know where to start. Right. They also made this silly design decision to make all of the expansions be deck construction for the original faction. So let's say we're playing with the Atlanteans. 
Now everybody can root through the Atlanteans decks and add those cards into their current faction deck and take out other cards. I've never really have been one to be with the right group of people to really dive into that in this way. It's like almost halfway between like a lifestyle deck construction game like Magic and like a board game. So I end up not really playing with a lot of the factions too often or just like doing what they recommend the two cards you take out and replace it with a couple other cards. But it's just it's it ends up being a little too much. I love this game. But just with that aspect of it, I wish they would have just said, "Okay, we're going to make the expansions more expensive, but every single faction is going to get a completely new deck that's going to be completely balanced for this new expansion and do that for every single one, because I would spend a lot more money just to do that. My number one beef with this game is probably the rule book. Oh, my God, it's awful. (laughs) Some fairly important things that are randomly buried in a paragraph, just as a little mention. And 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 oh, by the way, if you have an apple, you can do X, Y, Z. I'll spend half an hour flipping through the book, just trying to find the what's the cost I have to pay to do that? I can't find it anywhere. It's ridiculous. And then on top of that, too, the rule book is the exact same size as the box. And I didn't know this upset me so much, but it does. I hate it. It's so stupidly big. The entire rule book is just massive. It's just a lot of paper, like not depth. It's just a very big sheet of paper. And so you're like flipping through this, what feels like a roadmap to try to find these little paragraphs that are not laid out well. Uh, I've heard a lot of people complain about Portal Games rulebooks and kind of just in general presentation of their games, but it it's sad because Imperial Settlers is such an amazing game and it really could benefit from just a better rewrite of the rulebook. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So that is Imperial Settlers um, published by Portal Games and designed by the two people who will not mention as to not murder their name more. My number 11 is I think the oldest game that either of us own Eh, you might have a copy of Go sitting around. I'm speaking of published by No Answer and uh, designed by No Answer, Crokinol, which was from 1876, <laughs> according to BGG. Crokinole is a new love of mine. I went on a work trip to Winnipeg, which is not a fun drive from Minneapolis to Winnipeg. Would not recommend it. And I said, I should pick up a board game and bring it back just for my, for my time being here. And I sent a message online to some Canadians and they said, hey, go to this store called Lee Valley Tools. Went there, bought a copy of Crokinole, and my life has never been the same because of it. Crokinole is probably the most similar to like a bar game or pool, but it certainly is a board game, I think. But it definitely does dabble in that style of game. What you're doing is you're flicking 12 different discs into a concentric ring circle board that's completely flat. The inside ring has two kind of interesting things about it. The very dead center of the board has a little indented space for a disc that's exactly the same size as a disc that's worth 20 points. The innermost ring is worth 15 points in general. Then the innermost ring is also defended by, I think, six or eight or some amount of pegs to make it so it's not as easy to flick it into that center area. When it's your turn, you have to flick a disc from the outermost ring, and if there's no opponent's disc on the board, you just have to have it land in that 15-point area. If it ever lands in that 20-point area for any point in time, you take that disc out and put it on the side. It can never be hit. The other thing you can do on your turn is if there is an opponent's disc on the board, you must strike it with your disc. You can hit any number of discs into that disc, but you must strike your opponent's disc at some point in time with your flick. If you hit it, that's totally fine. Your piece stays on the board. If you do not hit it, all your pieces that you hit in conjunction to try to hit this one are removed from the board. Then we keep on doing that until... Each one of us has flicked all your discs. At the very end of the game, whoever Delta scores the most, depending on, let's say, Mark has two in the 15 area, I have one in the 20 area, and two in the 10 area, scoring 40 points. Mark only scoring 30. I would score 10 points. 
I taught you the whole game to teach you. You could play it now. But what I love about this game is it's just, it just has a game magnetism that I think a lot of games don't have in our hobby. I don't like to watch game streams. I would happily watch Crokinole game streams all day. We brought this to a buddy con up north and there'd be 12 people watching two people playing a game of Crokinole just because it's a fun spectator thing to watch. It's fun to make your shots. It's fun to shoot. It's such a wonderful game. It is by far my favorite dexterity game. And even more than that, it's my favorite casual game that I think I own. Jake, I did not realize you were part Amish. Part Amish? I am, uh, my, my family is, uh, what's the other Amish? I should know this. Or perhaps Mennonite? My family is Mennonite. Interesting. I mean, like distantly, but like when they came over here in like the 1800s were <laughs> Mennonite. According to the Googles, that it's actually distinctly popular among Mennonite and Amish people, perhaps viewed as a more innocent activity than playing cards or dancing. Wow, that makes so much sense. It also explains why I can't grow a mustache. <laughs> I only get cheek hair, cheek and chin hair. Oh, it was my. believed to have been invented in Perth County, Ontario, and patented by Joshua K. Ingalls in 1880. Then manufactured first in New York and later in Pennsylvania. So there you go. There you go. You know the history of Crokinole. It's wonderful. The one thing I will say about this game is it's expensive. My board cost 140 Canadian. I didn't have to ship it, thankfully, but there's a bunch of woodworking people who specialize in making these boards, both on Etsy and online. Google it. It's totally worth it. If you like kind of bar style, it's not like it's 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 weird because this game feels like darts. But like good, yeah. like actually it's like a board game interpretation of what you get out of darts or pool or that kind of feeling where it's like, OK, I got to make this shot. Oh, I made it. Yay. Kind of a good way to pass the time. Yeah. Ironically, a game that supposedly is more innocent and wholesome than playing cards or dancing seems like the perfect thing to play at a bar. Yeah, but it's weird because this would never be at a bar because every single table would have to have it. It can only play four or five. I think there's five player variants, but the baseboards are usually two or four player. You know, it's not like you can fit a million people at this thing. It's strange. It, it feels like a bar game, but it's not. Oh, I guarantee there's bars in Western Pennsylvania that feature crokinole boards. Yeah, I should have driven around Ontario. Next time I'll go to there and we'll have to see it. But yeah, if I ever own a brewery or a coffee shop, I'm going to have a couple of boards of this sitting on the wall because they're it's just such a fun game. And it's so fun to see people hooting and hollering immediately at this game. It's it's awesome. I love crokinole. Buy a board if you haven't. It's totally worth it. That is my number 11 game. Moving on, I know why this game was removed from your list here, Mark, because you got rid of filler games. And I think this one probably should have been removed, but I just love it so much I couldn't quite delete it off my list. I'm speaking of 1991's Teach You, designed by, according to BGG, Urs Hotstetler, published by Rio Grande Games. This is a game that, yeah, I didn't have in my list included in there, but honestly, I don't remember the last time I played Teach You in less than an hour, right? I mean, just because it's not that it takes an hour. It's that that's the period of time that we choose to play it for. It's worth it. It's worth an hour. It's worth an hour and a half. It's worth, <laughs> yeah. it's worth almost two hours. I have had this be all we play all night. That's how much I love this game. Yeah. So teach you. We've talked about it a bunch on the podcast. If you haven't heard about it yet. Oh, my gosh. Go listen to it. But it's functionally a classic style card game. Think hearts. Think up and down the river. Think spades. Think pitch. Think all those style of game. 500. Those kind of games. But this one is slightly different and it feels a little bit more gamery, if I'm putting that in air quotes. But it's a ladder game where you have to, the goal is to get rid of your hand. And it's played in partners, so two versus two, you sit across the table from your partner. There's other ways to play it, but I haven't messed around with those. Those aren't as good. It's a wonderful game. It really is an escalated version of like hearts or cards or, or, or anything along those lines. But 
it doesn't feel too gamey. Like I've played certain games like Time Crisis. What's what's your game that you like a lot, Mark? Yeah, Time Crisis. Time Crisis, mm-hmm. which is also a trick taking game that's wonderful. But I could not get my grandparents to play that game who are yeah. absolute savants yeah. at like pitch and 500 and hearts and all that stuff. But they would happily play Teach You because it's just such a good game. It's, it's played with a regular 52 deck of cards with four special cards. That's all it is. It is a wonderful game. The other downside I will say about this game that we've said at least once, it is so hard to learn this game from the rulebook. You really just have to have someone teach it to you. Maybe that's the why it's called teach you because it should be taught to you. It should not be learned <laughs> from the rulebook because I tried to do that and it completely went over like a wet blanket amongst my family. But once you taught it to me, I adored the game and it's such a good classic card game. And I find that uh, it's boy. It's tough going into a game of teach you with three new players because you end up teaching the game, the rules of the game. And then you spend the next two hours playing like open handed to talk about strategy because there are absolutely right things to do and there are absolutely wrong things to do. And, you know, you kind of want your partner to actually do the right thing. So, right. You spend a bunch of time talking through the no, no, no. It's actually really a bad idea to play a pair of aces down. You really want to save those aces to win individual tricks. Uh, Yes, I get that you've got a seven queen king, a I, whatever, some high group of cards. Yeah, don't play them as that high group of cards. That's bad. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you're going to be stuck with a bunch of low cards. And that just takes a while to teach somebody and learn when they're first learning how to play teach you. I really wish if I could go back in time, there'd be a lot of things I could do. But one of them that I do from a gaming standpoint is I would give this to like my grandfather in like 92 and just say, hey, play this forever with your family. Because I would love to have this be my family's game instead of up and down the river or something. Because it's not hard to play. It's not a crazy game. No, not at all. It's, it's easy once you understand it. But it's just it, you need to really embody all of it and play it for a long time. Like if your family plays cards, try to get them this game because they could totally play it. And it's great for gamers, too. Because there's just, just the right amount of gameriness to it without being too much to get rid of the classic card game folk. And when we're traveling, this is the number one game requested by my kids out of my travel game case. If we just say, hey, you know, we're kind of done with the day. Let's pull out the game case and play a game. First thing, both of them just goes, teach you. Right. Well, it's perfect, too, because you got you got two and two. You can divide it each way. You know, you got two kids and you got a boy and a girl. So you can divide by boys. You can play boys versus girls, oh, yeah. play kids versus not kids. You know, and there's always a fight to see who gets to pair with mommy. Oh, yeah. Is she the shark? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, let's teach you. We both are. In absolute love with this game. Now we are moving on to the fun part of the list, Mark, the top 10. If we were a higher budget podcast, we probably have songs for each one of these. They're like one of those number nines. Number nine. That's great. You did wonderful, Mark. Thank you. I'm speaking of Hisashi Hayashi's Yokohama, which was published in 2016 by Okazu Brand and TMG. We spoke about this previously because it was on Mark's list. This is overlap number three, so we won't go too far into it. But the main things that I love about this game is the random setup. So there's a whole bunch of different tiles depending on however many people you have in this game. So and then you're going to make kind of a bowling alley kind of tapered little wedge with those actions. And your president's going to be hopping around following little paths to go to each one of these different spots. And so with this random setup and the huge breadth of different actions that you can take spread amongst all of these different things, it ends up being this really fun puzzle. Combine that with the fact that you have to place down these little assistants, which are kind of breadcrumbs that you can follow to go take different actions. And then once you're there, depending on however many things of your color you have out there, you get to do powers of certain level. It ends up making this really fun puzzle. And it just feels like you're doing really well in the game with everything you're doing. 
you move to this fishing spot and because you had something there and you have the special power, you get to do this special thing, which makes it so you got four fish. And now because you have these four fish, you trade it in to get this resource thing that you were then going to use at this next place. And it's just it's just really fun and really it's just pure Euro goodness of a fun little mechanism put with a kind of wide range of actions and some special abilities that you can get. It just oh, we love this game, Mark. It's amazing. This really is what started our love for uh, all things Hisashi Hayashi <laughs> was this game. This is the first time we encountered him. What I think is sort of neat about this game is there are limits to what you can do by where people are and where you can move, but not so much that you can't plan a few turns in advance. So every time I play this one, I end up saying, OK, I need to. So my next four turns, I'm going to go down to the fish market. I'm going to place a shop on there. I'm going to get four fish. Then I'm going to move over to the church and trade all that stuff in. And I'm going to go up and do that. Then I'm going to go over and cash that out to get a patent. And then I'm going to run around here. And you end up stacking up all these things. And the tension comes from the fact that, oh, about that time, somebody else decides to go to the exact same place, throwing off your entire sequence of events, right. <laughs> leaving you to pivot and stop someplace else along the way and throwing you off a turn. And I don't know. It's, I find that I can do that much better in this game than many others. And I really enjoy that. Well, what I love about it, too, is you have to plan for now and the future. And it seems like a lot of Euro things kind of go to like, well, he just took my spot. Well, you probably have three spots you're working on, right? You're trying to build yeah, like, exactly. I know I'm going to come back to this fish spot in two or three turns. So I'm going to keep on putting little guys there. So it keeps on getting stronger when I go to the fish market. But I can do some other things along the way. It's just, oh, it's so good. I We're just so dumb. What we should both do is buy each other copies of Yokohama, just the deluxified edition off BGG. Call it our Christmas gifts for each other. And just sell our old ones just so we because this is both a top 20 game for our, both of us. And we've deluxified our copies to the best of our abilities. Top 10 for both of top us. Top 10. Yeah, it's such a good game. Try Yokohama if you haven't. It's definitely one of my favorite Euro games, if not my favorite Euro. I'm very curious to see what Yokohama Duel turns into. That's something uh, I kickstarted back last year. And the delivery on that's coming up soon ish. I don't remember exactly when, but um, yeah, something that sets up a little quicker than the big because you can play Yokohama two player and it's a reasonably decent experience, but it's not the best. It really lacks. I found it makes it so if you go there, they're probably getting two in the weeds here. But if you go to one of like the import actions, you can end the game in like 15 minutes. Sure. Okay. You just trade it. You get some cheaper goods and then you trade them in and you get a bunch of imports and then you trade them in. I think it ends at like five import goods being sold, which really just doesn't get enough time to have the game really develop. So I understand why they made a two player version. And I am actually excited to try it, too, because I kind of regret not kickstarting it, Mark. Well, yeah. we'll have a copy in our group. Yeah, we can absolutely play together. Jake, Mark, two players. Perfect. Hey, we can count. We did it. <laughs> That's Yokohama by Hisashi Hayashi and Ukazu Brand over in Asia and TMG here. Number eight is a game that I didn't think I'd like. And I out of the blue just reached out to you and I knew you had kickstarted and said, hey, add me to the Kickstarter. I want it. We'll see if I like it. I probably won't, but I'll just flip it. Seems like it's a game that's going to be that's going to be well, well regarded. I'm speaking of 2019's PAX Premier Second Edition, published by Whirly Gig Games and designed by Cole Whirly. So you went to a Kickstarter kind of glut about a year and a half ago. I mean that in a kind way, because I get to enjoy all the, the benefits of you kickstarting all these games. And I went into a Kickstarter hiding point. I tried to not kickstart as much 
but I ended up adding on to it. And Pax Premier is one that I missed, but you did out of the blue because you had never played a Pax game before this, correct? Well, yeah. And I think looking back on it, that was a period of time that was like right when you got like Rising Sun, you got this this monster box of plastic crap. Right. I was like, oh, I got to get it. That was just stupid. That was a dumb picture. That was dumb. <laughs> and that's when you just stopped. You're just like, I'm I'm, I'm so out of this. I, I'm just going to quit this whole Kickstarter thing. Look at all those plastic crap I got. And that was about the time that actually there was a bunch of really good heavier games that all kickstarted at the same time, Pax Premier being one of them. And admittedly, I didn't know that much about it jumping into it, but I knew like this Pax thing was kind of cool and they're kind of hard to get. And boy, if I didn't jump in on it now, I'd probably never see it again. So I went in and then you had not buyer's remorse, <laughs> decided to go right on my coattails and get an add-on copy. And wow, look where we ended up. It was completely worth it because it's my n- number eight game, which is technically almost an overlap with you because yours was like 24-ish, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was in so, my honorable mentions. Right. Absolutely. And why don't we talk about what we actually like about this game? So you're different Afghan tribes trying to hang out in a time known as the great game in like the 1850s, I believe, in Afghanistan, where a bunch of Western and local powers were kind of vying for control of this territory. But what I really like about this game, aside from the presentation of it, is I just love the opacity. This game is really easy. If you read the reference sheet, you know how to technically play the game. It's not hard. There's not a lot of things you get to do. And you have like six or seven actions, and then there's six or seven different like symbols on each one of the cards whenever you play them down. And this really simple to understand rule system ends up becoming this huge opaque, why am I doing these things? Why am I given these tools and what am I trying to do? So when you first start playing, I kind of give it the analogy of like you're wrestling in a straitjacket where you're like, I don't feel like I can do anything. But the second, third, fourth, nth time that you play this, you realize all of the different things you can do while still being tied up in the straitjacket. And what I also like about this game is we are not the coalition powers vying for Afghanistan. We're smaller, lesser tribes trying to play these coalition powers against each other for the best benefit to ourselves in the region, which is just so amazing because you get to switch between these factions, these coalitions all the time to try to get the best like result for just you and your gray people out of this thing to make sure that the blue people don't win this region or whatever. It ends up being such an amazing game. I love so much about this game. And to make it even more amazing, the the the, the publishing that Whirligate Games did was second to none. It's just has such an amazing board presence. And I will always play this game. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I think just because you know the rules, boy, that's such a tiny part of the battle in playing this game. It's a bit like saying, hey, okay, I now know how to walk. Okay, I'm going to drop you in the middle of the Peshawar region, and now you get to find your way out of Afghanistan. It's like, wait, where where do I go? (laughs) It's a very equivalent problem. Right, right. And why? And why? Yeah, no, but but you know how to do everything. You know how to walk. You know how to run. But why are you walking? Why are you running? All these different things. Where are you going? And the questions it asks, oh my God, I love the thing where you're looking around the table, you're like, okay, like John has XYZ mini cubes out there and, or discs, pardon me. It's a game of discs, not a game of cubes. And I know he's going to win when that thing checks up. How can I possibly mess with him in the one of a million ways that I can mess with him to make sure that he goes down and I go up on the disc track or whatever. And maybe I'll send an assassin over there that I didn't see by buying this card. And then I'll assassinate him by changing all these different things. Oh, it's just... You feel like you're unfolding this amazing tapestry of things you can do. And oh my God, I love this game. We've spoken at length about this game, but 
oh, I, I love it. With every single play, I continue to like it more. And I think this is one of those that has been very popular. I don't know if there's going to be an, you know, it's not available at retail. So track down a copy if you can, because it's absolutely worth the effort may not be available going forward. I don't know. I haven't got a sense. I wonder if they'll do a reprint on this one because it's definitely been popular. It definitely has. I think it's available on their website. Final little plug for the gaming moguls. You can buy upgraded tokens, dominance tokens from Mr. Mark Teske on the Gaming Mogul store on Etsy. Search us. It's you great. can. Mm-hmm. And I have them and they look wonderful. Pax Premier is a great game. It's also, I think, a great starting off point for the PAX system. I have only played two of the games in the system and I did not like one of the games I played, but I need to recircle back to it and see if I'd like more games in the system because ooh, I'm a big fan of Pax Premier. My friend, we will have the opportunity soon. Yes, absolutely. Number seven is a game number four overlap between you and me. I'm speaking of Great Western Trail, designed by the Honorable Alexander Fister and published by Eggertspiel and Stronghold. We spoke about this one in the past podcast, so again, I won't labor too long on it, but oh, this game is so cool. It's just a bunch of really interesting mechanisms that shouldn't fit together and work well that do, and oh, it's so good. I, I love this game. I, this was a game that I loved so much that I didn't own a copy of. I ended up trading a game just to get a copy of it. And I don't know if I've actually played my copy yet, nor do I think I really need to. I just need to have this game. How much I love it. There's a few of these games that literally we all own copies of. That's one. We all own copies of Caverna. And there's a couple others where there's such popular games in our group that everybody owns a copy. So you still feel like you need to own a copy just because you want to own a copy. Like I didn't need to buy a copy of Great Western Trail knowing that everybody else had one. But I've played it with my family who loved it. And it seems like when you're playing this thing that there are too many decisions to make. Have you noticed that? Like, yeah, it usually it usually revolves around money. Like money is really short in this game. You never have enough. And you're always trying to jockey back and forth. And boy, I kind of have enough to either buy a cow or to upgrade a building, but not both. What am I going to do? Right. It's it's amazing for fun. Little little tidbits of information that we didn't mention on the previous recording on our previous podcast talking about this. I actually have not played this game that many times. I've only played it four times recorded on BG stats, but I didn't own a copy. And for 2017, I didn't record any plays except for games of my own copy. So I played it a couple of times previous than that. But so far, since I've been recording plays for this game, I have yet to win at it. And Kirk has won 100% of the times I've played. So (laughs) I agree with your thing. It just seems like there's so much to do and there's so many different little things to consider. You just really got to make sure you're playing the best strategy you can. And I would absolutely play this game every single week for the next two months just because of how much i love it and i think it has enough weight enough depth and enough decision making going on it that i don't think the next two months would be dull at all i just think it's that kind of game and i have played it five times and have not ever won either we are so bad we should we should really just uh impose our (laughs) our pictures on top of the constipated cowboys up front on the front of the copy because we're clearly constipated and can't win at this game so that's Great Western Trail, designed by the Honorable Alexander Fister, published by Eggerspiel and uh, Stronghold Games in the States, I believe. Yep. Number six is a game that I also love that I think would be in your top 20 if you included fillers, but you got rid of fillers. And this one, again, it kind of feels similar to Teach You and uh, Glory to Rome, where, yeah, it's a filler, but man, we play this game kind of like it's not, you know? <laughs> it has more gravity than that, for sure. 
Absolutely. This is Arboretum, which is published in 2015, originally by, I believe, Z-Man Games, but I have the copy from Renegade Games Studio, and it's designed by Dan Kassar. Spoken about this game a bunch on the podcast. Uh, we've been lucky enough to play it a lot. It's my most played game of this past year. What I like most about it is it is three things that I really like in games. It is incredibly interactive. Everything you do in this game must be filtered through what your opponents are doing. There's not a game where you says, oh, this is good for me. I need to do this. It's always a question of, well, what do they have in their tableau and why are they building this? It is incredibly mean. You can force feed people cards knowing that you can, you're just not going to allow them to do it because what we're doing is we're building different tree pathways, but only certain people will be able to score it depending on what cards you have in your hand. So what you can do is you can give people smaller cards, hoping that they keep on playing them and keep on building, hoping they can get that big card to score that path, knowing you're sitting on the eight and the one or something, for example, and they're just never going to be able to take that path from you. I also love how tight it is. Every single action you take in this game matters. And you originally start and you're like, how big is this deck? We're going to be playing for that long because that's the end game is when the deck runs out. But every single time you play, you're like, but I wanted more turns. And I just absolutely (laughs) love what this game ends up being. It's dead simple to gamers. It's a little hard to explain to non-gamers. You kind of have to play a half game and show them how to score and then reset. But it it has been such a shining winner. If I were to buy anybody not in this hobby a game and say, you want to think a little bit, buy Arboretum. It's amazing. It's such a good game. Yeah, and bang for your buck, too. I mean, small box game, $20. It's hard not to really recommend that to really everybody. Agreed. Arboretum, most recently published by Renegade Game Studios and designed by Dan Kassar. You're the man. You made an amazing game. Moving on to number five, designed by the Splatter Crew. This is my favorite Splatter game. I'm speaking of Indonesia, which is published in 2005. This game introduced my love for financial games. It was the first financial game I had bought after I had bought Food Chain Magnet. Food Chain Magnet doesn't feel financial. I don't know why, but Indonesia certainly no, I does. Agree. Yeah. What you're doing is you're different business people growing up different businesses in Indonesia in, I think, like the 1800s-ish time when it was a Dutch colony. What you're doing is you're building up these different resources and sending them to different local cities through a kind of logistic thing, which seems to be common in every single splatter game. What's so cool about it is this merger and acquisition kind of thing. So if you have three units of rice as a company and Mark has, a, has a four units of rice as a company and someone's going to merge them together. Everyone now can bid on those three and four respective new company formed seven share rice company. What's neat about it is you don't actually have to pay everyone. You need to have all the cash to be able to buy that out in liquid cash 100%. So, but the payouts are going three sevenths are going to me and seven and four sevenths are going to you. So I'm actually paying only four sevenths for this new merged thing while John, who has no stake in this rice merger, is paying fully, totally to each one of us. So I just love what that has to offer. Couple that with the fact that the companies are worth nothing at the end of the game. They only are worth whatever they ship. It just makes it such an amazing experience, Mark. We haven't played this one in a long time, and it's kind of sad. Well, we haven't played it in person in a long time. We have actually played a couple of online games during the course of that summer. You were in on those, weren't you? I was. I was. That was right when we were wrapping up before I was getting married. So that's our right. online Indonesia does not take very long compared to an online 18xx game. Yeah. And that was a kind of a strange thing. Like I had a hard time tracking what was actually going on in the game versus when we play in person. 
you really see how the goods move and you see like who has influence in a region and so forth. Whereas when you play online, things just kind of happen <laughs> and you come back to it and right. like, oh, what changed? Ooh. Why 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 didn't I ship stuff there? I don't know why. Well, and I also I, I made so many mistakes with regions. The regions to find for the shipping in this game are really annoying. Right, right. And so in person, we give people a lot of like takesy backsies and oh, you can move that there. And I made one and I didn't want to make the group completely make it mess it up. But I said to you, I DM'd you at that point in time. I just lost this game. It's over, you know, because I moved to the wrong space and there was no need for me to move to that space. And I couldn't expand elsewhere. And ugh. Right. but Indonesia, right. that does not disparage Indonesia. It's an amazing game. And it's so fun. It's like ask something of you that I don't think a lot of 18xx games asks with this awesome merger and acquisition. I'd love to see an 18xx game that kind of tries to put together what Indonesia does with this sweet mer- oh, merger mechanism. Yeah, interesting where you're essentially you're the amount that you pay is variable on the uh, amount of ownership that you have in one of the merged companies. Yeah, like share ownership or right, something. And I'm right. sure there probably is one down there. I, I, I haven't played 41 and I played 17 and not, I haven't played 1817 to know if it does offer it, but oh, this game is amazing. Indonesia is so dang cool. I formerly owned a copy of this. Probably should have kept it. I ended up trading it, not because I don't like the game. It's because I got a pretty good trade offer for it, and I knew you had a copy of it, and I couldn't really see when I'd be playing it not with you, so I ended up trading my copy away. Now I'm kind of regretting that I did, because that is definitely one of my two favorite splatter games. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Well, you can borrow my copy anytime, because it's not getting any use here. No, I know. And that's uh, that as I look down this one, that's that's certainly a game that I need to play more in person just so that I can play it better online. Indonesia. It's wonderful. Number four is I think my list is a lot older than yours. Mine's from 2014, my number four. And it's actually a variation of a game that's already been mentioned on this list. I'm speaking of Roll for the Galaxy, designed by Hui Hua Huang and Thomas Lehman and published by Rio Grande Games. And on the box, it says proudly made in America. I think one of the only American made games I own. Hmm. I love this game. Things that I love about this are kind of broken into four different things. I love the chunky dice in this game. I love shaking them up. I love how fast the game is. I love guessing what people are going to do. And I love building an economy. Circle that in with kind of a dice version of Race for the Gal or Race for the Galaxy. And a lot of the same things that I like about Race for the Galaxy exist here. It just makes such an amazing package. Surprisingly, I actually played this game before I played Race for the Galaxy. So it was interesting moving backwards to go from Roll for the Galaxy to Race for the Galaxy. I have played this game so often with my family. Um, It was before I started recording plays. But since I've started recording plays, I played it like 25 or 30 times. And I played it at least probably that much before. We had one Christmas trip. We were just playing this game after game after game. And when you've played this game a decent amount, you can play it in 35 minutes. Sure. It is just amazing. I love what this game has to offer. I know you like it, Mark. I do. I've got that and I've got the expansion. It's been a while since I played it. No, no good reason. I don't know why. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I doesn't come out often. It's a bear to teach. Well, that's for sure. It's hidden information with the dice and people could be cheating. There's a guy at the game store known as Cheater Mike and uh, Cheater Mike won this game when we played with him. And we don't usually play with random people for that reason alone. And who would imagine because he can change his dice faces to whatever he wants. So (laughs) there's one thing that's strange about this game is there are powers that allow you to use dice for different things. And at a certain point, once you get enough wild dice and can enough powers where you can move stuff around, 
there comes a point where it sort of doesn't matter. Right. As long as you have the right colored dice for ER, you can more or less move dice to wherever you need them. Right. To Especially be. when you have enough dice because you can reassign and then there's certain reassigned powers they can do. But right. Right. Man, this game's amazing. It's kind of sad that I still haven't bought the new expansion for this game. And it's my number four favorite game. But <laughs> yeah. I just kind of like where it is now. I don't know if I want to explore. I wish it was just more of what it is now, not new modules. I just kind of want it to be exactly what it is now. Just more of it. But Roll for the Galaxy is an amazing game. It's kind of my weird random choice. This is probably my heart choice on the list where is it that great of a game? I think so. Yes. But I just love this game kind of inexplicably. Yeah. And definitely is probably the noisiest game on our list. I know I, there's actually <laughs> BGG patterns for putting felt inside the cups. Maybe you should do that. But I love I love how clanky and loud it gets. That's Roll for the Galaxy by Thomas Lehman and Wei Wang Wong by Rio Grande Games. Number three. This is probably the one that you dislike, not dislike, that you would probably not want to play the most out of my top 10. I would imagine my top 10 would be a great game day for you that you'd love to be a part of. The Guy Project one, which is my number three game, I don't think is one that you're dying to play as much as as much as the rest of us are. Yeah. If you were to take your top 10 and say, hey, put these in order that you want to play them, it would be number 10. Yeah. Having said that. If I were going to put the top 100 of your games in order that I wanted to play, this would still probably be in the top quartile, right? I mean, it's a really good game. It's just that of the games you have in the top 10, it's probably my least favorite of those. And that's probably just due to, I don't know, uncomfortableness with it, right? Like, I don't feel comfortable playing it. It's interesting. We'll talk about that in a bit. Why don't I describe quickly what Gaia Project is, which we've talked about a bunch on the podcast. So you definitely should know what Gaia Project is. Guy Project is a 2017 published game by Z-Man Game, designed by Jens Drogemuller and Helga Ostertag. It is kind of a spiritual, not even spiritual, I think it's a straight-up successor to Terra Mystica, which keeps on getting expansions, so maybe it's not a successor. But it's functionally that kind of style of game where you're building different resources on or different uh, buildings on different hexes to try to make and get the most victory points. I'm not going to explain all the nitty gritty of what you're doing on your turn, but it's just an amazing, heavy Euro game. You look down at the board and you can kind of see all of this open resources and all these different things and seeing what you need to do. Each round of, I think, six or I don't know, however many rounds there is, there's a certain thing that scores victory points each time you do it that round. And these are kind of things that you're doing the entire game. So I love to look at that map board and say, okay, well, In round two, I know I need to build my big building. Everything I'm doing in round one is trying to link up to round two. It's almost like you're piecing together your strategy for this game based on how the arrangement of those victory point tiles come out. Kind of circling back to why you don't play it as much. I think you have a perception that we're really good at this game. And I don't know if that's the case. I, I, it might be, and I, this might be a little mean. I don't think this is the kind of Euro games you like. Hmm. And, uh, you might be right. In what, in what way? It doesn't seem like you like the putting stuff on the board, kind of bigger resourcey. You kind of like games where there's cards or there's dice or there's things you take from each other, but you don't like it when there's big map board euros. And maybe I'm over exaggerating this, but I, I understand why you don't want to play this, but I don't think it's because I like if you were to play it, I think you still do fine. You're smart. You're good at Euro games and you've played this game four or five times, probably. No, I've played it once. Really? Only once? Never mind. OK, you're still <laughs> you're still earlier than I thought. I take back what I said. Yeah, no, you, I literally have played this game one time, so... You should play I, it more. It's I, I am a babe so in the woods when it comes to this game. 
you are. And it, it there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on in this game. And it's fun to see all the different ways that you can piece together all the different resources to do everything you need to do in this game. I I love Gaia Project. It's another game that I actually traded an 18xx game for. Um, I knew the Kickstarter would be happening, but still, that's why I did it. I thought about buying this one when it first came out and then saw the $90 price tag on it and went, oh boy. Yikes. (laughs) Well, they certainly did try to pack as much nice components in there as possible. All the different buildings are all different plastic molds and it's a good looker, but I love Gaia Project. I could play it just like Great Western Trail or Wednesday Game Night every single week and be totally fine with it. That is something that I definitely am interested in, will play again at some point in the future. Right. And to summarize my thing, I don't think you're bad at these style of games. I just don't think it's what you like about Euro games. I don't know. I mean, every time I've played both Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, I've enjoyed the experience and so forth. But you know how you just you get that buzz after you play a game that you just love. You walk away and just go, that was great. You know, and I walked away and I went, oh, that was fun. I don't think about it again after that. That's funny because for a while I thought I was done with Euro games. When we started playing a bunch of 18xx, I was like, why? It's, I went to kind of a point where I was like, when I played long Euros, I was like, why am I playing this when I could be playing 18xx? And then I played Gaia Project and I was like, oh, this is why. This game is amazing. And it kind of mm-hmm. helped revitalize my love for Euros, which I've somewhat cooled on in the last couple of years. So that's Gaia Project. Let's move on to my number two. My number two game is keeping with the space theme and also is another game that is uh, on your list. This is our number five game that we crossed with. This was actually the big, my biggest point of anger with your list. Not, not real anger, disappointment maybe, because this game was not <laughs> higher on your list and really? it deserves to be number two, Mark. This really? could be my, this number two versus number seven, Jake, really? It's not enough, Mark. There's five in the way. That's not that's not good enough. You know, it's not high enough, Mark. Five. There's five in between. That's 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 not enough. First, let's give the name of the game. This is Leaving Earth, designed by Joseph Fatula, published by the Luminaris Group, published in 2016. We talked about this one in your list pretty extensively because we're both so enamored with this game. So I'll go a little bit weirder with my description of this game. And with that, have you ever seen the movie The Martian, Mark? I have seen the movie a bunch of times. So do you know, you know who Don Glover is, right? Donald Glover, the, 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 he was in the community. He's a rapper. He's Childish Gambino. He's been pretty famous in the last couple of years. Okay. You're aware of him, right? He's anyway, he has, I am aware of him. He has a small role in that movie where he's like a, like kind of chummy admin, kind of like math guy in it. And so anywho, he's, they're trying to solve the whole issue of how to get Mark Wahlberg back from Mars. Right. And so there's a scene where he just all of a sudden he's trying to crunch the numbers on this and he all of a sudden figures it out. And what I love about that scene is it perfectly kind of encapsulates what you feel when you're playing Leaving Earth. And you've actually said this so much in the last time or one of the last times we talked about it. You're talking about William playing this and he all of a sudden looked up and he said, I know how to go back to Mars. And that's exactly (laughs) Exactly. the feeling that you get from this game. And it just feels so amazing. Hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The issue with that is... uh, we have talked about the last thing is that functional part of this game is kind of mathed out, but I don't think that that goes away with repeated play because it then goes in the other part of this game that I absolutely love. Besides that thing where you're like brain blast, I figured this out. You have to balance all these objectives and all these things they're going with the testing of your equipment and timing of all the things that you have. So if you have 15 extra bucks and you could test and uh, fire off an extra Apollo or something by selling this technology to somebody for $25 or something, that's probably worth it. So you can test more to be able to get that technology. So it's just it 
ends up being this incredible game of trying to figure out how you're going to get these different places and having these big brain blasts of how you're going to be able to solve these problems, like getting to Mars and back. Balancing that with controlling your resources and all of these different rockets that you're testing in the process of working with. The biggest one is it's imagine if Kerbal Space Program became multiplayer, that you could really do anything you want in Kerbal Space Program. You can chop together a whole bunch of wacky different boosters and come up with this really unique Kerbal way of getting into orbit and getting to planets. But you're actually playing a multiplayer racing against somebody else. So there's somebody else at a space base just kind of on the other side of uh, Kerbin that's also trying to meet the same goal. And they're coming up with a completely different, crazy way of doing it. And you're both trying to whoever gets there first is the one that claims the glory and the additional profit. That is how I'd actually describe leaving Earth. And um, that's a lot of the appeal to it, because, yeah, it would be just sort of a literally a puzzle. I mean, go play. Tramway's engineer notebook or something other if you're just going to play it by yourself and just try to figure out the puzzle. But it's not. It's a competitive speed game where you're trying to do it quickly and you're trying to take a few risks so that you can do it better, faster, quicker than your opponent. And that's that's where the game really gets exciting. Agreed. And the presentation of this game is amazing, too. I love the way it looks on the board. I love how the different like art is if you're communists or whatever if you're the russians leaving earth is just an amazing package altogether i love what it asks of me i love what you're doing in the game i love the theme it's there's very little to not love about my number two game leaving earth i think i've only played this to completion one time like with william where we actually played it all the way through because i think the times that we've played it it almost was more of the hey let's just play this for a while and now we're good that was fun yeah so (laughs) i've played it with tyler a decent amount we had kind of a thing going where we just play this on like Sundays and just kind of bang it out kind of thing. And I played it to completion a couple of times or the other completion is if someone's so far ahead that you can't catch up. So right, if someone right. takes a True. 15 point thing and the other cumulative points on the board are less than 15 plus where you're at, the game's over. You know, there's no point in continuing. So, yeah, I haven't played with either expansions either, especially now that we have these amazing boxes. We should play this one again. It suffers from a lot of the issue with a lot of the games on this list. It's really hard to play at like four or five player. It's right. a long game. It's a right. big teach. It doesn't fit in our Wednesday nights. So then it becomes a two or three person thing. So then it becomes kind of a wishful, oh, why don't we play this? Because we're not playing something else kind of thing. But I love Leaving Earth. It's my number two favorite game. It's got a lot of math. It's a lot of fun. It's an amazing game. And I've had a few people request this recently that have heard us talk about it that basically said, boy, I'd, I'd love for you to teach me Leaving Earth sometime soon. Let's do it. It's a sin that we haven't played it as often as we have. Yep. Yep. I love it. So I think I'm at seven plays of it or something along those lines. And this really should be a hundred play game. I love it. Yeah, Uh, probably a maybe four. So drum roll, please. Here we go. Number one. Number one. (laughs) I bet you people know what it is. It's 18xx. And I know that's incredibly boring to put as my number one game to say, yeah, it's 18xx. I don't know what else to say about this game besides the fact that I love these games. They're most of my 10s and 9s that I rank on BHG are given to 18xx games. They scratch an itch that I don't think many other games even get close to. Um, I was playing with Scott Peterson of All Board Games, and he said something kind of interesting. He said, what I like about Euro games is discovering the different things in them. And they have a certain amount of plays in them. But then once you figure them out, the grinding's not as fun with it. And he said, the opposite's true of 18xx. I don't as much enjoy the kind of exploring of it, but I really enjoy frequently playing these one and kind of just grinding it out. And that's really rung true for me recently. I don't mind playing the same 18xx games only, really, because I just really love what they ask of me. 
I love the financial nature. I love that there's literally like probably 118xx games. There's plenty of variety in the system. I just love them. I love trains because of it. And it's made me a complete weirdo. Thank you, 18xx games for ruining my life. <laughs> yeah, and it is one that even you, if you play the same title multiple times, in fact, even I would say simpler 18xx titles like 1889, for example, if you wanted to say, hey, man, let's fire up an online game of 1889 today, I'd be like, yes, indeed, we shall. Let's do this. Because right. even though we've played it a bunch of times, even tiny, subtle differences in how we play from time to time ends up really like warping the game in strange ways and making it play completely differently. Right. The butterfly effect in this game is amazing. Let's say somebody chooses this float versus that float for whatever reason, right? That you wouldn't normally imagine. That small choice of just what float you're going to do has complete waking conditions throughout the entire game. Right. And they follow through all the different way. You know, it's just, I, I was originally worried with a game like 1889 or something along those lines where it's like, oh, there's no variance to set up. Setup's always the same. It's going to be kind of playing the same game over and over and over again. But that couldn't be more from the truth. It's amazing seeing all these hyper differences pop up in these games. And I am absolutely enamored with them. I'm not at the point where I'm only going to be an 18xx person. But if someone were to say, hey, you have to play only 18xx games next year, I'd say, you know what? I could probably do that. The butterfly effect actually comes around sometimes in a uh, rather negative effect, too, because... yeah. There is a it's a pretty bad feeling, especially when you're playing an online game that can last months where you're out of the game early in the game. And there's you know, there's no way to catch up. You got off the line way too slow and somebody's already in fourth gear and you're just shifting into second and you're not going to be able to run them down at the end. And now you've got hours in person or months online to just be a good sport about it and run the game out and let the person that's going to win have their victory, even though, you know, that, well, (laughs) there's no chance. So. Our online game of 1822MX is like this. I've been out of this game for months. Speaking of, you're actually up. I'm aware. Yeah, you're just <laughs> just hiding from it. So wh- wh- why don't we take a quick moment and kind of mention my 18xx games that I've given 10s to. And these are the ones that I think are just amazing. So my top game being 18xx isn't just completely boring of just, oh, we all saw that coming. First, I absolutely love 1846. Playing this online with the Chicago guys and uh, Phil this summer completely opened up my mind to what this game can be. And I totally understand why people have played this game hundreds and hundreds of times because it it's amazing. It's it's completely racy. Getting your tokens in this game can be absolutely brutal. Setting up these different things, all of a sudden you just vroom and the first OR is amazing. You're all the way to Chicago in two ORs. It's amazing. I love 1846. I'll always play it. It's one of my top tier ones. My favorite full cap with chrome game is 18 mexico which is one of my favorite ones i've always heard this one paraded as a really hard rusting kind of train rush kind of game i don't really find it that way like buying a train is hard in this game but in 1828 like you can really be got without your pants down versus 18 mexico but i've always heard it paraded that way i love what this one has to offer i love the mail contract in it i love the fact that your your companies are completely dead once they've gotten all their money in it it's amazing A new addition to the 18xx10 list is 18 New England by All Aboard Games. I really like what this one has to offer. We've spoken about it at length, and I'm actually going to be on an episode of The Train Rush about this game. So listen to us over there. Then my other Mexico-themed 18xx game I love is 1822 Mexico. It really took what I thought I liked about 1822 and made it just slightly a little bit better. Plus, I love Mexico's geography for trains. It's kind of fun where there's this big open area with kind of spattered uh, revenue centers and this big revenue center right in the middle of the board that gets really tight with Mexico City. 
one of my last two favorite 18xx games i've given tens to is 1889 which is my favorite full cap with not too much chrome game and then 1817 the amount of financial levers you're given in that game is ridiculous i can't wait to show you that game mark it's gonna be you're gonna your head's gonna spin it's crazy (laughs) it is amazing sure (laughs) you'll love it you'll love it it's great Interesting looking at it. I purposely omitted 1830 and it would be in my top five for sure. If I were going to rank my top tier 18xx's, my list would actually look remarkably different. Like my top three would be easily uh, 1849. It would be 1822, just the vanilla one. And it would be 1889. I would say that New England would be on that list after that. mm, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I find it really hard to rank 18xx games against each other in a level of granularity. Oh, for sure. So it kind of becomes this like tier system of what I actually do and don't like. Yeah. So anywho, that's 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 my top 20. I love 18xx, I guess. Trains, I am. This is me now. That is another fantastic list, Jake. I mean, really, a lot of those were on my either my top 20 or very, very nearly on my top 20. And in both cases, I think either one of us could pull out our top 10 list, top 20 list for a game night. And both of us would be just happy as a clam on that. Oh, that was a great game night because we played all of our favorite games. Well, it's funny because on your list, I don't know what this says about our group, but you've played a lot of my top 20, I think, more than I've played your top 20, except for obviously Race for the Galaxy, which is interesting. What does that say? Does that say I run games more than you? Or I'm a bigger bully about making. Well, no, or I'm not a bigger bully. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Or maybe I play my games more often. Well, okay. No, no, no. No, I I know what it is. The fact is that I think I play in a larger number of game groups than you do. Oh, yes. My Wednesdays are really my main game group, except for the trains group. Whereas I also play with my family. I also play with uh, another group of friends that I've been playing with for years. So I have a few more outlets to play games than you have. So that might be the case. Wait, we're not exclusive, Mark? No. Thought we had to always be near each other and we played games. I didn't know what I got myself into. Oh, I know, Bert. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm Bert. You're Ernie. (laughs) Uh, Somebody called us the Ernie and Bert of podcasting board games and so forth. So (laughs) I'm not sure what to take out of that. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of being Bert. I'm good with it. I think it's funny. So. Anyway, I'm Mark Teske. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This has been our Top 20 Jake episode. Woo. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. I like how most of this, most of this uh, thing has just been me bothering you about your list. (laughs) Not even talking about the merits of my own.